Welcome to the fourth Frontline Gastroenterology podcast related to the Christmas special Twitter debate on Sunday the 21st of December 2014 entitled Frontline Research, the Highs and Lows of Academic Life, the Basics, the Barriers and the Breakthroughs. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in London. I'm thrilled and delighted to introduce the Nobel Laureate Professor Barry Marshall uh, Editor-in-Chief of GUT, Professor Imad El-Omar. Professor Barry Marshall is an honorary uh, clinical professor of medicine and pharmacology at the Charles Gardner Hospital, University of Western Australia in Perth. Amongst his many international accolades, in 2005, Professor Marshall, along with Robin Warren, were awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine in recognition of their 1982 discovery that the bacterium Helicobacter pylori causes one of the most common important diseases of mankind, peptic ulcer disease. This discovery was the first step in developing more effective treatments for ulcers and in understanding the causative link between H. pylori and stomach cancer. Professor Al Omar is the Chair of Gastroenterology at Aberdeen University in Scotland. He's also an honorary consultant physician with NHS Grampian. Amongst his many international accolades and editorial board positions, He's the editor-in-chief of the journal GUT. His main research interests are in the role of microbially-induced inflammation in GI cancer and in inflammatory bowel disease. His group has strong collaborations from national groups both in the UK and internationally in the US, Europe, Asia and Australia. Thank you both for doing this podcast to accompany your brilliant Twitter debate in which you've included a number of slides. A summary of the Twitter debate will be um, on the Frontline Gastroenterology and GUT website. During the Twitter debate, we focused on a number of areas of academic life and you gave some really fantastic advice to aspiring researchers, which really leads into my first question to both of you. And I guess for many aspiring academics, the most important question about how and why should you get involved in research? How do you find the right project, first of all, the right mentor? and even the right institution to start in, uh, with. Maybe if I ask that to Professor Marshall first. I don't think you go into research for research's sake, but in my case, uh, after being in clinical medicine for about, I, I guess, five, five or six years, I recognised that there were so many people I was seeing who I couldn't really do anything for. They didn't actually have a definitive diagnosis or we didn't have a treatment and many of these people would uh, end up with a diagnosis of a functional disease, which is a, uh, I, I guess that's a, a catch-all for anything you can't find the cause for and maybe could be psychosomatic. So it was unsatisfying for me. So uh, whenever I had the chance, I would try to go further. We'd, we'd try to investigate things a little bit deeper. So when uh, I got connected up with uh, Dr. Warren looking uh, at spiral bacteria in the stomach, that was an interesting scientific thing. Uh, but as soon as we, we connected it up with some real disease which, for which the etiology was uncertain, uh, it was just uh, like putting a rocket under us as far as the amount of work we were prepared to do to chase this because it was so much more satisfying than uh, just uh, you know, taking everything for granted and, and carrying on with, a, with an unsatisfying um, therapy for ulcers. Okay, that's a, that, that's a really interesting insight into how, how you, you, you started out. Professor Omar, um, 
how do you find the right project institution and mentor and and, and why did you get involved in research and why, why should others? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Philip. Your involvement in research is really kind of uh, driven by a desire to improve healthcare. I think you've got to have an inquisitive mind and also the desire to actually make a change, make a difference. And uh, quite often, you know, if you seek uh, the opportunities in research, you'll be rewarded. But you have to actually uh, do some hard work and look for the right mentor and the right research project and the right institution. The way to do that is to uh, seek the opportunities available to you uh, as an undergraduate medical student. That's how I started. Uh, I was very keen to get involved in research, and I looked for uh, the right mentor. Uh, now, the definition of the right mentor is somebody who's engaged in uh, exciting research, research that has potential, uh, research that uh, is attempting to answer important clinical questions. Uh, it would help, of course, if this research is well-funded, which allows you an opportunity to engage in a kind of serious manner with the research. Uh, but most importantly, uh, you have to have self-motivation. Uh, you, you've got to make that part of your philosophy in your clinical practice, the realization that progress can only be made through research. Uh, if we just continue with the status quo, eventually things decay, and we have, uh, uh, as, as Barry mentioned, an inability to help our patients, and that's obviously uh, not advantageous for clinicians. So research is the only way of actually making progress and advancing the agenda of reducing the disease burden in society. That's, that's really interesting in, in terms of how you got involved in this. And, and I guess part of it must be the, the feeling of, of wanting to make a, a, great, a great discovery and to advance things. And I wondered whether both of you could um, summarize how you approach the real highs of academic life. For, um, for example, Professor Marshall, how you approach winning your, the Nobel Prize and as well as you, Professor LOML, your many accolades, how, how, you, how you dealt with that. But also, more importantly, I guess, how you approach the lows in academic uh, lives, such as the rejection letters, the failed experiments, and so on. Um, and maybe, Prof. LOML, if you could also just advise if uh, a researcher, if their paper gets rejected from a high-impact journal, such as what, what should they do and how should they approach that? Prof. Marshall, if I could ask you first about your Nobel Prize. Uh, well, that, that was a, in some ways, it was a high point. It was a high point for my colleagues and uh, people who'd assisted me over the years and Dr. Warren. But I always say the most exciting part of winning the Nobel Prize was actually doing the research 20 years before. Uh, because once you start, once you, once you get onto something that's interesting and you're generating new knowledge, then you're, you're having these high points every day when you go to work and there's, New, you know, developing continuous new hypotheses and following it up and trying to predict what's going to happen and then and writing it up and then doing the next experiment. So every day is, is a bit of excitement for you that you're trying to, for me, fit around your clinical work and you're saying, darn, if only I could just do this 24 hours a day, I'd be in seventh heaven. So that, that is the incentive then to try and get funded and then be your own boss and uh, you don't really, if you're, if you're doing what you love, well, then you, you don't really have to have, the, uh, you don't have to put much effort into the work ethic. You're going to do plenty of work and be your own self-starter uh, rather than just doing it because doing someone else's research. If you can get your own line of research, it's, it's just terrific. And I assume also within that that there have been times of, of quite, you know, of, of low points as well for you, uh, uh, Prof. Marshall. Yeah, well, actually, I suppose uh, people say to me, who's my mentor? Well, I had a lot of good mentors, but 
perhaps the the thing uh, the theme that was going through my early years was that I had mentors who had also had published, but who certainly had many rejected papers over the years. So they might have been 10, 10 or 15 years ahead of me in their careers. And uh, it would be get a, get a, a rejection letter and um, far, far down in the bottom of the rejection letter be possibly could be resubmitted with extensive modification or some comment, comment, comment like that. And my boss would be there with a big smile on his face, Barry, that's an acceptance. And I say, what? Mm -hmm. what? So there's a bit of experience that goes into it and uh, I would say you don't always have to, if time is of the essence and you're really working on a lot of different things, you cannot spend your whole life focusing on one submission. You need to, to get that thing published and, and move on. So it's the citations and the awards don't necessarily come from your highest citation index publication. It might be your lowest one or your earliest one which people ignored at the time, but 10 years later they realised that was the seed of the discovery. So I'm very happy with that, the way it's turned out at the moment in that people do have a lot more choices and uh, open access uh, journals uh, are usually a bit easier to get into because there's no limit to the amount of stuff they can publish. Okay, so that, that that's led quite nicely into um, Prof. Um, LMR. I wondered whether you could now focus on, particularly from being a... Uh, an editor point of view about what you advise the research if they've, you know, they've 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 been rejected and they've had this disappointment. What what should they do really in those situations? Uh, yes, a very nice question, uh, Philip. So the rejection is uh, an essential part of uh, future success. So uh, if you have your work rejected, uh, I guess the first thing to assess is whether this was a fair rejection. So you've got to be very honest with yourself. You've got to know the literature, know where your work actually fits in in the hierarchy of the published work. And if the criticisms are valid, then uh, the best way to deal with this rejection is to try and improve your work. So you do the work that they've suggested to bring it up to the required standard. Yes, it's been rejected to this journal, but as Barry mentioned, there are so many others where you can publish your work. Sometimes, actually, by following this rejection and upgrading your work to a higher level, you're actually able to publish this work at a higher impact journal. Uh, it's just uh, it, it's a kind of a silver lining in all rejections. If, however, the rejection is unfair, if you've perceived that the editors and the reviewers have made a factual error, then I think you're entitled to uh, send a polite letter to the editor and to point them in the direction of where this error was made and try and explain uh, why you think this error was made. However, uh, in my experience, the best strategy is always honesty and getting on with the job and moving on. Uh, as Barry rightly said, you know that you, you can't just spend your energy trying to publish one paper. You've just to keep the research program moving ahead. There are many uh, ways of getting your work published, but the most important thing is that quality of the work has got to be very, very high. So if you're always aiming to get high-quality work, you will always be rewarded at the end. Okay, they're, they're fa fantastic insight um, from both of you. Thank you very much for that. To me, as because I'm a, a a junior registrar and just uh, finishing some research at the moment, perseverance seems like a, a very good word to use in this situation. A lot of people ask about how do they actually go about? How do you actually go about making a name for yourself? Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people won't win a Nobel Prize, but how do you make a name for yourself outside of those types of 
arenas, keeping in research interest going and maintaining clinical work, for example, in, in, a, in a busy NHS or a busy you know, healthcare system across the world. Uh, maybe, um, Prof. El Omar, just if you could talk maybe from the UK's perspective, because I, I know that's a major concern for UK docs, how they find that, that balance. So again, a very important uh, point, Philip. The desire to do research has got to be your philosophy in life. You know, you don't view it as a kind of a, a means to an end. It's actually part and parcel of your clinical practice. So to actually make you a, a, an excellent clinician, you have to be a researcher. Now, research doesn't mean necessarily always working in a lab or doing basic science or whatever. There is research opportunities in every aspect of your practice. Yes, you have a very busy clinical profile and uh, it's essential that you maintain your credibility and your commitment to service. However, you should always set aside time for your research. Uh, I, of course, I'm aware of the pressures uh, here on doctors in the UK and the uh, new ridiculous contracts where you know you have nine plus one and very little time for research. But I think as a society, we have to uh, re-examine uh, those types of contracts and allow our doctors and our clinicians to have the protected time to carry on with the research. Quite often, unfortunately, you know, we end up having to do most of this extra work in our recovery time, in our kind of uh, free time. Uh, but if you enjoy what you do, if you believe that research is part of your philosophy and uh, you know, commitment to good clinical care, then uh, that would not be viewed as work and it would allow this uh, extra work to be uh, incorporated in your timeline and uh, you will achieve uh, major breakthroughs. You might start off just with a very interesting clinical case. And uh, as you, it might be a little presentation on the Monday, next Monday's meeting, uh, it might be a grand rounds or something, but you end up doing a lot of work on it, a lot of uh, study, looking at the literature. And at that point, you could be more or less a local expert on that. Uh, case, and then you might uh, be interested in that and, and follow it up a little bit further. So, I had a couple of research projects that that were on the go, and in retrospect, if, if I hadn't uh, got onto the helicobacter, it's quite likely that I would have had an interesting career in research in environmental medicine. For example, I was very interested in marathon runners and heat stroke. What happened? Why were they collapsing? How could they go faster? What what were the weather factors? and uh, was quite involved with that. So I was already the local expert. We're going to have a moderately hot Christmas here at, in uh, Western Australia, and um, it was a, a fabulously interesting uh, area of research because people used to migrate to Western Australia, and then they would bring out their elderly mother from freezing England uh, to uh, visit them at Christmas and uh, the poor old ladies would be collapsing all over the place just because of being inappropriately appropriately dressed or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so uh, it was quite an interesting area with, with plenty of scope for publication, uh, presentation, international meetings or whatever I wanted. Um, so uh, I, I had that to fall back on and I, I didn't realise that after following that for six months, I was pretty much the uh, local expert in Western Australia at least and could have easily taken that on to environmental and sports medicine, which I, I still like doing it, but it's uh, lots of different ways of getting into research. Well, we're, we're very glad you, you stuck with H. pylori anyway, because I'm sure the world is as well. Just briefly, Prof. Marshall, um, could, you, could you briefly uh, just suggest to aspiring academics 
how how you know on a practical level you can start building a name for yourself or making a name for yourself uh, while you're doing research. We're talking about um, acceptance and rejection of papers. Yeah, you you can make it a lot easier for yourself and for for your reviewers if you get a, if you sort of fertilise the ground that you're going to put your paper onto beforehand. So. Uh, these things like a, a local, a little local meeting uh, where you have a poster or something, that's great And because you're standing there and you can bounce ideas off your colleagues and they'll come along and say, oh yes, I know somebody, I saw someone doing this or someone did it another way. You can get a bit of an idea, a few leads like that to follow up on. Then you might present it at the, you know, the, the um, your country uh, annual meeting or you might actually go to an international meeting and have a poster accepted and then uh, a lot of people and you, you don't know who it could be Dr. Uh, L. Omar coming past and he probably doesn't want to spend 20 minutes on every single poster there's thousands of them there at the gastroenterology meetings but he might come past and kind of look at your conclusions and that very quickly uh, from 10 or 15 feet away and think about it uh, so you don't really know who who is now aware of this concept there might be someone come up and really drill down and ask you some pretty hard questions and be quite critical uh, at an oral presentation or something but uh, these uh, little uh, preliminary uh, publications if you like which is posters and uh, oral presentations in scientific meetings uh, do raise the awareness of this thing which you are creating an issue out of you saying well you, nobody's looked at this properly and it's really could be important because of ABC and then when you uh, do submit your paper, you may find that you've got a few, you know of a few people who might be interested who could be reviewers or the editor might know of somebody who is a reviewer there and the editor, so they might say, well, we, let's send this one off to review because I spoke to this guy at a meeting and it was pretty interesting stuff. I think that's, that happened with me and it certainly helped some of my early publications uh, get through that would have, might have been rejected otherwise. Don't uh, think that getting it into the journal is the only thing you have to worry about initially. The, the preliminary publications in the scientific meetings are very, very useful to, to set yourself up for a good publication. That's, that's great advice from both of you. Thank you. Um, one of the things that came out when we, when we did the Twitter debate was that people do see barriers to translation and research and nowadays with uh, funding and these very big consortia. Um, I just wondered whether you could both give um, um, advice um, really to, to people that are wanting to do research but are worried about barriers, about um, how to overcome barriers such as funding and, 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 and all the other different barriers that potentially lie in, lie in the way of, of research. I wonder if um, Prof. Marshall and Prof. Elomar, you could each in turn give, give some advice. Um, I I think uh, you have to be persistent and the first time you get funded it might be your second go. Uh, I, I could see myself maybe having two or three tries at it uh, and that means you have to have a real career, initial uh, you know, clinical career or whatever else you do, whether it's teaching or clinical work. Uh, and, and be prepared to do that and have that as your, your foundation if you like and uh, fit your research in around the edges or you may have a scholarship but ultimately you do have to be funded so you have to have some you have to have an original idea uh, which people think is important and 
which uh, is generating uh, new knowledge. So you, those just scientific things are necessary uh, and hopefully you will get funded. In Australia and in the United States, it is not terribly, terribly difficult to get your first research grant as uh, a young investigator or you might be a, might be a PhD postdoc or something with your first application of your own uh, of your own for funding. Those ones tend to be a, a little easier, and you can usually get funded for three years. It's not a bad what, bad start, and uh, it gives you a pretty good chance. You don't always succeed, but uh, I would say uh, that's kind of what happened with me. Although it was less formalised, I I had a lot of rejections uh, for funding, but eventually got myself funded. It was just one person on one with one salary and a little bit of spending money, and it really got me going. So I published you know, half a dozen publications in the next couple of years. Yeah, I would just add that uh, perhaps in the kind of the, the modern era, one of the major problems for clinicians is, is the uh, pace of technological advancement. I mean, we quite often hear about the you know the, the genomics revolution, the proteomics, and so forth. All the omics are now becoming so kind of uh, difficult to get into. So my advice to kind of overcome these barriers is to equip yourself with the knowledge and the tools to be able to understand the basic science, but drive the research from a clinical perspective. So that's why it's very important to invest in the, you know, our young clinicians and clinician scientists to actually learn the technology and be familiar with the language that is spoken in basic science, but use that wonderful science to solve our clinical problems. So I think they, you know, there should be more investment in uh, kind of bridging the gap, the gap between the, uh, the the clinical domain and the basic science domain, but drive it as a clinician trying to answer uh, clinical questions that are relevant to, uh, to to our society and the disease burden. I was never particularly interested in working on other people's research, although you know the helicobacter one was almost handed to me on a plate because Dr. Warren needed a clinician to go and see what, what was wrong with these people who had bacteria on their biopsies. But um, the, if, if I had joined a, a larger team that was doing clinical trials or something, the useful things that I would have learnt there, say, say I had a fellowship or an apprenticeship for a year, I would have learned how to manage data, how to collect data and, and organise data. Because uh, you'd be amazed at the number of people who have a good idea, but they don't have any idea of how, collect, how, how to collect the information. And if it's not effortless for him, uh, a statistician's not going to spend days fixing up your data just so that you can do the analysis. If you can hand it to him in a couple of nice files, he, he'd be quite happy to go click-click in his statistics program and say, wow, that's very interesting, it's significant or not. That, so if you can organise your data, that is a great skill to have. The second one would be applications through ethics committee. If you know how to write an animal research application or an ethics committee application, those I've been on the other end of on the committees, and uh, it's just such a pleasure when you have a nice application written. Um, so that's a skill you can get done. Get all the uh, uh, tricky bits organised and, and research the, the uh, animal uh, ethics part of it properly, have the methods and procedures in nicely and a good explanation in, in plain lay English, uh, you will be a very valuable person in the research team even if you're not doing your own research and you'll be, you'll be set up to, to do your own thing uh, the following year I would say. 
Okay, um, thank you both for that. Um, I want to, I, we've touched on it already, but I want to just briefly focus on um, the breakthroughs. And um, I want to ask uh, Prof. Marshall about when you make a very big breakthrough, how does it actually change things in terms of your day-to-day -day kind of um, the direction you go in terms of funding, in terms of the next steps? And <clears throat> Prof. Eloma, from the perspective of a uh, an editor of a leading high-impact journal such as GUT, what 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 do you look for um, when you're reviewing a, a, an article that you can tell research uh, researchers about to to try and help them submit their their breakthroughs to you and to to other journals? So, uh, Prof. Marshall, first, how, how does it change things uh, a breakthrough? Well, it, in some ways, if if you get a bit too overexcited about it, well, that's going to come through into your publication. Your editor might say. Well, you know, this seems kind of excited, but he hasn't really convinced me. He hasn't uh, crossed the T's and dotted the I's here. There's still a lot of holes in this hypothesis, so we can't really publish it without more data. So there's a bit of that that goes on. So tempting is a move too quickly. And uh, by skipping over, you know, little details in the hypothesis or the research, the progress of the research, you leave yourself open for criticism. There's always somebody who's a sceptic who will see, see a reason why you're getting the results that you're getting, and it's nothing to do with you know, Helicobacter as the example. There might have been 20 other reasons why people taking treatment X uh, <clears throat> felt better and, and uh, healed their ulcers, and that was always a problem. Um, so uh, being a little more patient and methodical and meticulous with uh, the, the uh, finer details of, of the study, of the, of the research you're doing, often helps a lot uh, to convince those skeptics. Um, and it, it could have, I could have done it a lot better initially, I think, for that. And actually, Emma, Emma uh, and colleagues in uh, Scotland in those early days, they focused on something which everybody knew was important, and that was acid and filled in a lot of these details, which then helped me, because they said, oh, well, this kind of explains what Helicobacter is doing because of this. Uh, so Imad's probably got a comment on that. I agree entirely with what you've said about how thing, you know, it changes things and so forth. Uh, as, as an editor of, of, of a journal, obviously, if I get something like uh, Barry's story into my journal, that would be, you know, Christmas come early. <laughs> it would be really nice because it's something that is essentially challenging dogma. Uh, it's a significant advance that will obviously stimulate further discussion and research and open up a new field. That's exactly what Barry's discovery made. It just it created an opportunity to have real understanding of a major illness in our uh, in our age. And you know, lo and behold, this disease has now disappeared because of that advance. So of course, the the, the journal would be delighted to uh, accept those kind of papers, papers that will open up a new field and allow other. Uh, researchers to contribute to the uh, to the debate and the advancement uh, in this. Now, how do you achieve that? How do you submit such a paper to a journal? It's all about the design. And if your design is sound, then your conclusions are sound. If the design is flawed, then no matter what statistics you use, it's always going to be flawed. So when you're writing your paper, put that in mind. Something important, an important topic, uh, a, a sound design, you know, proper interpretation, and a conclusion that would allow people to go and challenge this work and uh, make the field progressive. That's, in summary, what uh, I look for in, in papers submitted to the journal. Okay, thank you. I mean, I'm sure that 
um, people listening will find that really uh, interesting, uh, give it really interesting insight from both of you. If you had one piece of advice, of course, that you would give to an aspiring junior academic or research, what, what would it be? And also, although it, it, you don't have to answer this, um, if you did have your time again, um, what might you do differently, uh, if anything at all, of course? Uh, Prof. Marshall. Uh, aspiring, aspiring researcher, I'd say if you, if it's possible, just focus on the the great, the interesting and good parts of research. If you like it, uh, and you're doing something that's interesting and new, then the 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 other rewards, like potentially <laughs> a good salary, uh, running a department, all all those things that you might aspire to in academic medicine. They will follow uh, if you do the research well, and you you, you could if you've got the beautiful combination of a, of a basic research and a clinical outcome. Uh, it's the, the, this type of uh, research is rather rare, but really is very satisfying and productive because you've got yourself or colleagues at the top end seeing the patient. And you then uh, c can direct the basic research because I think some basic research teams they lose their way and they um, might be you know missing out on a lot of very interesting relatively easy and very useful uh, outcomes uh, just to focus on some other thing that's very very difficult without perhaps a translation at the end of it so uh, the clinical and the basic connection is is fabulous if you can keep that going um, I, th I think I would have spent more time in, um, I would have gone more into basic uh, research and probably instead of, uh, when I went into gastroenterology, I probably could have gone into in microbiology and infectious disease. Um, but things were moving too fast to gastroenterology. But in retrospect, of course, 1983 was the year that Carrie Mullis discovered polymerase chain reaction. Now, I wasn't to know that, but if I had gone into microbiology and, and, and got a research job in the United States uh, in that field at the CDC or somewhere, um, I, it would have been perhaps a bit faster for the Helicobacter pylori story instead of 15 years maybe. Uh, it could have changed a little bit faster. But uh, I, in, uh, after the event, I've gone back and tried to Educate myself on these areas of genomics and molecular biology, etc. But you know, I'm not as good as a person who did a PhD as a bench scientist in those early days. Those those guys are all having a great life still, uh, working in the genomics areas. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I, I guess my kind of most important piece of advice for aspiring clinicians is is, is to choose the right mentor. I was really blessed to have met uh, my mentor, Professor Ken McCall, from uh, Glasgow at an early stage when I was a medical student, and I really owe most of the success in my life to uh, to him. So that that's a, an important aspect of your uh, you know future career is mentorship. Would I have changed anything at all? No, I'm really quite blessed and very happy with the way turned you know things turned out. So uh, I'm a, a very satisfied man. Thank you. <laughs> well. Thank you both once again for this, uh, your fantastic contribution uh, and support, both with the Twitter debate and this podcast. Um, we're re really grateful, and I'm very grateful as well. Um, the slides from the Twitter debate will be available next to the link in the podcast 
for the podcast, which will be on the GUT website, but also, of course, on the Frontline Gastroenterology website. The next Frontline Gastroenterology Twitter debate, and the first one of 2015, is with Dr. Alex Ford, who's an Associate Professor and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist in Leeds, on Tuesday, the 13th of January, at, um, 2015, um, 8 to 9 p.m. GMT time, and is entitled Frontline Neurogastroenterology, Evidence-Based Therapeutics in Irritable Bowel Syndrome. We hope you can join us then and uh, using the hashtag FGDebate. And thank you once again to Professor Marshall and to Pre- Professor Lomar. Thanks a lot. Have a great Christmas.